Hey, podcast uh, listeners, it's Michael Shelley here, uh, bringing you sort of a special rerun edition of the podcast because Kim Fowley passed away today, and I interviewed him way back in 2008, in the summer of 2008. It's a long time ago. Uh, he was just a fantastic guy to interview because he had an answer for everything, and he didn't hesitate. I mean, as fast as you can answer a question ask questions he would answer them and and I guess honestly he as soon, as soon as I contacted him we had a few friends in common and a few times he called me at my house and he would talk a long time he was just interested you know in what I was doing I, it was just an interesting experience kind of knowing this guy uh uh, it's just, it's too bad we've lost him, but he was 75. And at the end of this podcast, you can sort of hear he talks about his health a little bit. And uh, I guess it was slowly going downhill, but now uh, this is 2008. Uh, I urge you to go check out his website. It's kimfowley.net while it still exists. It's kind of a weird website. It's an unusual website, just like I think everything about Kim Fowley was sort of unusual. Uh, but a great guy to interview and just a guy who had his fingers in so many records. It's possible, I would guess that he made thousands of records, had something to do with thousands of records. Uh, early uh, Norton Records has put out a couple of compilations of these just very odd one-off uh, 45s that I don't think were out when by the time we did when we did this interview they've come out subsequently but uh, it's just all kinds of weird stuff that this guy was involved in everything from you know craziest stuff to hell and ready so uh, you never know uh, I want to just let you know some great stuff coming up next week is uh, Steve Boone that should be coming up just in a day or two, uh, from The Love and Spoonful, whose book uh, I really enjoyed, Hotter Than a Matt Shed. And I've left uh, part of the original introduction to this podcast. When I ran it the first time, I, I did a podcast introduction because it has my, I just was, I was shocked. I had no memory that my little daughter, who was then three and a half, uh, helps me do the introduction to the podcast, and I thought it was interesting. So I left it on, but it, it's very short, and then we'll hear from Kim Fowley. So here it is. Hey folks, this is Michael Shelley. Welcome to this week's podcast. Uh, first news is next week I have off. It's my daughter's birthday party. She's going to be, I think, three and a half. It's a long story, but her birthday is December, so we have her party. We're going to have her party in, uh, in the middle of June, sort of a half birthday. Does that make sense? That makes sense. It'll be fun. I think we'll have a cake. I'm not sure what color exactly. Pink. Pink, apparently. And I want a princess cake. A princess cake. Well, I don't know about With that. shoes all over it. With what on it? Shoes. Shoes on a cake? Yuck. Uh, that's a nose pincher. Folks, today my interview with uh, Kim... No, no frosting shoes. Frosting shoes. Uh, today my interview with Kim Fowley. Really, I think this is a fantastic interview, which is pretty easy to do with Kim Fowley. You just uh, turn on the microphone. Ask him a couple questions, he does the rest. Well, I guess that's really what an interview is, isn't it? Meanwhile, here is Mr. Kim Fowley. You want to say see you later, suckers, to everybody? See you later, suckers! The movement of the lonely On the frozen field of life The reflection of another age's sun Help me, help me, help me Trying to scream for help Me trying to be the memory Losing what is mine, can't you see me? Fighting a never-ending war with me Like a flower seed in the jungle weeds Kim Fowley, welcome to WFMU. How are you? I'm cold. We're having snow, hail, 
and tornadoes in Southern California for the last three days. <laughs> it's supposed to never rain in Southern California, according to whoever that awful singer was. Uh, uh, Albert Hammond Sr., he was good. His son's in the strokes. And by the way, these are the last days of rock and roll, possibly of planet Earth. And we're having weather difficulties all over the universe, so why not? You think it's a cosmic backup? No, I just think it's people who are waiting for the new John Fred and the Playboy singles, and they're rebelling in, a, in cyberspace. Uh, you were born in 1939. Your father was a well-known Hollywood actor. Your mother was an actress as well. Did you grow up in sort of a Hollywood lifestyle? I grew up uh, with eight uh, stepmothers, and my mother had two marriages, a total of ten families from 1946 to 1960. And was that as awful as it sounds? It made Charles Dickens look like Walt Disney. <laughs> uh, how did it, when did you know music was going to be your thing? When I spoke at 10 months to my family and I said, why are you bigger than me? My mother started crying, said she gave birth to a genius, put me in front of a Victrola and played me a Carmen Miranda record and said, talk to the music, little baby. And then I realized, be careful of what I say, and uh, I guess this is my new friend of music, and that was uh, in 1940. Huh. Uh, you were born the perfect time to sort of experience the explosion of rock and roll. Uh, your first hit, I guess, is the Ali Upali Hollywood Argyles 1960 reached number one. Is that right? It was the first record as a producer, a co-producer. It was a, I co-produced it with Gary Paxton. However, I was in the the phony group version of the Jayhawks, stranded in the jungle, and I was uh, the promo man on Skip and Flip's Cherry Pie, and then I was the promo man West Coast for Tall Cool One by the band The Wailers. So I had been around it, but not as a studio guy, but as a promo guy. And then uh, that was 102 million records ago. Yeah, Tell me what you did in between singing to the Victrola at age one or two and producing the Hollywood Argyles. What, what happened in between there? Polio, foster homes, World War II, for starters. Yeah. Uh, all of a sudden you're on top of the world with the number one hit? Were people knocking on your door? It was the overnight success no education, no preparation, and of course we blew all the money and we were we broke into the piggy bank of the fan club to have Christmas dinner the, the next December of that year. Hmm. Uh, a cover of Nut Rocker uh, by B. Bumble and the Stingers, a number one hit in the UK, a big hit here in 1962. How did that idea come to you? First of all, that was the, that was a cover of another version, but I wrote all the versions publishing and writing, so it, it's been recorded over 407 times, and uh, licensed, etc., since then. It was your concept is take the, is it Tchaikovsky and... No, my concept is, I have a heartbeat, therefore I have an idea, and I have ideas every day, some work, some don't, and I pursue all of them as best I can, and... It wasn't any epiphany. It was just another one of the many ideas that people who are creative have each day. And this one happened to click, and it clicked. 
Uh, there's tons and tons of early uh, productions by you. A couple of a bunch of them are uh, culled on two great compilations. One co- one's called Underground Animal, and one's called Outlaw Superman. I mean, Most bootlegs. I never received any money from it, and those weren't official. But the artwork really? was good. Yeah, the artwork. They're both on Dionysus. Really, they're both sort of gray area bootlegs. Well, there's no gray area. They just put them out, giggle, giggle, because they could. And they did, and I didn't know about it till afterwards. Oh, that's awful. Uh, it, it sort of points to you being uh, really prolific during that time. What was, I mean, I guess part of it is that people made records in a day or a few hours instead of months. Well, that's because it was 45 RPM singles. It wasn't long albums with, with bands, and nobody used real bands. Uh, or if they were real bands, hi, you have a minute, shut up, make noise, leave. Tell us where you live, we'll mail you a box of 25 records, and that was it. So early stuff like that, were were you a house producer somewhere, or were you just grabbing people by the hand? And- I'm like I am today. If the phone rings, I answer it, and I show up and do the job. Sometimes I don't even know. Then I say, drummer, tell the bass player to turn down. I don't even know some of the people I record. I don't know the songs. I record bands to this day in other countries for example in Europe I don't speak their language I just go in there and make noises and they make noises and we get it recorded somehow so uh, sometimes I don't even know the name of the song or the band members but I do it anyway tell me how corrupt like an emergency room doctor they don't know who their patients are they're saving lives Uh, how corrupt is the music business first of all how corrupt is planet earth in the 21st century and and what music business mm, I'll make it clear how corrupt was your dealings do you feel you've been paid what percentage of money due to you for your 1% 1% for your whole career yeah that's with attorneys and accountants and contracts that's that's pulling it out of Well folks. I've made 5000 records give or take and I think I get paid on about 50 of them why is that uh, ask the Beatles and everybody else who didn't get paid everything, and they had more legal backup than I ever had. Everybody had problems because the industry was an outlaw business and still is, and I don't believe that everyone is getting their just rewards in every level, even emotionally. How many husbands and wives reward each other for being in love? So why would the record industry be different? Uh, you had an, another big hit with uh, the Mermaids, Popsicles and Icicles, a huge hit in the UK, uh, 1963. No, it was it was a huge hit in America. It was the record that was number one that the Beatles replaced with "I Want to Hold Your Hand" in America. Hmm. Uh, one of the amazing things about the early, you know, the, the early '60s records is the the people that you cross paths with sometimes as just session musicians, singers, writers. A lot of those people go on to lots and lots of uh, great things in, in the music industry. Probably. <laughs> Tell me about working with Phil Spector. He owes me money on that greatest hits album he put out in in England that charted along with Dion. And share. Um, I'm still waiting for my statement. He's talented. So what? That's it. You, well, nothing equals nothing. No money. How was it? No rewards. Record charted. Went to twenty-two in the in the NME, NME of overall chart, and uh, not a dime. And, and and when I asked, I was told. 
be lucky you're mentioned in the same manufactured product with this guy just because your name is on it is enough reward get off our phone phone was slammed down <laughs> that's ridiculous uh tell me how the 60s uh well, by the way he and i had an encounter uh in 92 we're at a party for ringo star thrown by todd rundgren phil specter said hey kim fowley i'm a better producer than you and i replied but you gave up after the Ramones album, and I continued. So maybe you were for a while, but you never continued. I did, therefore I'm better. You want to fight? And he didn't. And that was that. I'm surprised he didn't pull a gun on you. Uh, he can't. Not to me. Army Air Force veteran is yours truly. I know how to fight. I've been shot before. I've been grenaded before. I've been tear gassed before. A little blade or a little bullet ain't going to hurt me at all. When were you in the Air Force? I was there from 58 to 61. I was a National Guard guy who had an inter-service transfer, and I was activated for all kinds of race riots, fires, floods. You know, you know, we show up for every, like the National Guard today going to Iraq. I mean, you suddenly are there. You're not supposed to be, but you suddenly, your orders say, show up there throwing bricks, you're in the National Guard, the house is burning down, show up and save lives, and you do. Hmm. Uh, uh, That's an amazing part of your background, I think. Right. There's not many ex-servicemen in uh, in rock and roll. Most people had doctors that got them out, or they didn't want to serve. I, I chose to enlist, and I was a high school juvenile delinquent, and I was told by the police, either join the armed services or go to jail, so... For selling uh, illegal alcohol to people on, in the school, friends, you know. So I I had to go, and I made the best of it. Hmm. Amazing. Uh, tell me how the the situation in the mid '60s turned into. When we think about the '60s, I think visually people imagine hippies and this kind of media-created version of the '60s. But how in the music industry did things turn from? kind of a square, a more square world to this sort of hippie world. Everybody found drugs, and drugs changed it, just like today. The drugs determine what the audience is listening to because the musical audience, popular music audience, is generally loneliness-driven, alcohol-driven, or drug-driven. And depending on the drugs, if you note... Things like ecstasy make dance music listenable. You know, if you're not on, if you're not high at a rave, you can't, that stuff will mean the same to you. Or maybe in the 1920s they had moonshine, or they had prohibition. And if you start thinking about it, the environment of music is always live, and live means recreational abuse or loneliness. I always feel that churches are full of lonely people, and so are nightclubs. So there you go. If you think back, uh, it's what people are drinking or smoking or dropping that can, determines how they listen to music from a nightclub perspective. And did your personal perspective change at that time? No, it's the same. I go to church, and it's like, and I see all the people in church who were in clubs the night before. Hmm. Uh, t- were, were the hippies good folks as a group? Sexually, it was really good because the women were loose. 
the guys didn't want to fight you because they were drugged out, and so you got to steal all their girlfriends, and uh, they they didn't lift a finger. So from that point of view, it was good. There was nothing good about it, and I don't do drugs, so I was never high. So I got to steal everybody's girlfriend. Uh, you, you so you're saying you never did drugs at all? No, I because I was a polio guy early, or I, I always equated drugs with self medicating, and I never wanted to be medicated. I wanted to, not to be crippled, so. I overcame a crippling thing, uh, so I didn't deal with it. Most of the people who did drugs weren't sick first, so they had a different outlook. It's not a moral issue. I, I don't care if people get high or not, but why get high if you're get, if they're making you high to cure you of a disease that's painful? Hmm. You, you, Most of you, you people don't. Sister Kenny didn't get high. Latrice Latrac did not get high. Uh, a lot of crippled people don't get high because they're already medicated. Interesting. You did write, uh, there's a, a song called The Trip. You had a single in 1965. Yeah, well, that's, a, that's about drugs. And you just, uh, it was just your observation, or, or is well, it? Well, Brian Wilson didn't surf, and he wrote surf songs, and Kim Valley didn't do drugs, and he wrote drug songs, so what? Yeah. Uh, well, it's just it's interesting that a lot of people sort of look to you as one of the early uh, proponents of drugs by maybe misinterpreting what that well, that's record means. Their problem. Yeah. Uh, in this, you moved to London for a while and uh, worked with a lot of people mm-hmm. who, again, a lot of people went on to huge things. Tell me about that time and what the scene was like there, and why did you go? Name the bands, and uh, then I'll tell you. Of why I went per band. Oh, so you didn't stay there for for a long no, time? No, I don't stay anywhere. I travel all the time. Uh, Cat Stevens, uh, early soft machine. Cat Stevens was born on my birthday, and he and I were both under contract to the same publisher, so we met in the waiting room. But soft machine, I met the night I met Pink Floyd at Chalk Farm Roundhouse, and they knew who I was. And the other group didn't, so I worked with them because they I didn't have to audition. Mm. Name another band. Slade, or the early version of Slade, the in I met them at Tiles when they were the in-between. Same four guys, different name. And they were great, and I said, I'd like to make a record. And they said, when? And I said, two weeks from now when I have studio time. And I made nine tracks in one day with them, and EMI put the record out. You'd Better Run was the single. And in America, the single was Security written by Otis Redding on uh, Highland Records, the same label Rosie and the Originals were on. Hmm. This whole time you're putting out uh, solo records on a a bunch of different labels, and that is really some of my favorite stuff. In in fact, it's maybe some of what I think Kim Fowley may be underrated for. You're so well-known as a writer and a producer. Sometimes I think folks forget about your huge catalog of, of solo records. Tell me about how most of them were recorded, those early 60s records, and how the songs were written. How do you write songs? You told me once that you stay up all night till four in the morning writing songs. Well, if I'm under, if I'm getting paid to write songs for a project, I, I, they say, well, we're, we were doing an album about poodles and chihuahuas. So, uh, you know, I'll just do it. And I also am spontaneous. All that, the trip is spontaneous. Right now, I'll write a song. I'll write a verse and a chorus. Give me a song title. Look around the studio. I'll do it a cappella. Quick, give me a title off the top of your head. Uh, number one hit songs. Number one hit song, really kind of good and strong. Come on, baby, sing along. Number one hit song. So a lot of the stuff uh, on these solo records is just put together right there in the studio? Yeah, no, we just jam it and edit it and go home. 
<laughs> or number one hit song made by baby cry when she said goodbye it was a song that made the bluebirds fly that's the other version of number one hit song so you just keep and I can do the country version if you want. Number one hit song here on the tractor. Quite a factor is the mud rolls down face. I oh, can just do anything. I mean, well, so what? It doesn't have one of those will twenty minutes from now will, uh, get recorded. Yeah, I, I think you're right. An instant classic. Uh, t- mm-hmm. Tell me about Frank Zappa. He was like Phil Spector. No one got royalties. Hmm. Uh, tell me about working with Gene Vincent, 1969. I'm back and I'm proud. Nice man always in pain because of his leg right and what were those sessions like was he did he have a clue was he trying to become a hippie he pulled a gun on paul rothschild and the drummer of the doors and the guitar player of the doors when they brought their girlfriends in to look at him as a freak and he didn't like it Hmm. reached into his boot and said if these people don't get out of here i shoot through the window of the studio i'm a marksman and you're a marksman because you told me you were. Well, I am one. And and then we went back and when we recorded Sexy Ways, which was a Hank Ballard and the Midnighters cover. And on that album, it's the most rock and roll of all of them. And uh, because Gene was bad. Gene was serious recording artist. He was like all those guys back in the day. It was going to the office. It was respect the studio, respect the opportunity Let's uh, make a record and then let's go on tour. Let's rock. 1969, worked with Warren Zevon on his first album. Tell me about him. He was difficult. He was irritable and he was grumpy. <laughs> is it impossible to make a good record that way or is it just as easy just Oh, di- just turn on the machine and threaten somebody or make them laugh or confuse them and they'll respond and you'll get it on tape and then they go home. Huh. Uh, you worked with uh, Skip Batten, bass player for the Birds at that time, wrote a bunch of songs. What was the th- circumstances there? He wanted to be a Tom Lear version of Chuck Berry. Oh, no, a Fats Domino. He, he was a great harmony singer, and he said, what should I do? I said, would either be an Everly Brother or be a bird, but don't try to be Fats Domino and meets political satire of Tom Lear because we're not going to get it. He says, well, I won't let you write with me unless you write those kind of songs with me. I said, yes, sir. <laughs> and so uh, David Crosby never liked the songs that we wrote for the Birds albums. After he left the band and complained about it in print, I cashed the checks. Hmm. Uh, yeah, of course. Uh, tell me about working with Jonathan Richmond. Is that 1972 or so? Jonathan was Lou Reed's Roger McGuinn. He imitated... Velvet Underground and Lou Reed and it was just a Lou Reed tribute band on a kid suburban level that's how I saw Modern Lovers another guy uh, hard to deal with whose Um, idea was it to put you together with uh, Jonathan Richmond I met him on tour when I was a singer they came to my hotel room with a disc jockey named Max Zan from WBCN in Boston and Nerdisby. Here they are, and I listened to them. I said, I'll record you, and I did. Yeah, I, I love the recording you made with those guys, and I'm, I'm sorry there's I did not more. one day in Dinky Dawson's studio, uh, who was the Birds tour manager, lived in Boston. He had a little recording studio in his basement, and his dog was giving birth to puppies, and we couldn't leave to go to the bathroom 
uh, because the dog would attack us because they were protecting the puppies. Puppies were born in front of his bathroom. So we made the whole thing in one take, and we ran out of the door chased by a pregnant dog nursing <laughs> whelping puppies. And that's what I remember about it. Uh, uh, all right, let's let's uh, talk about writing songs for Kiss. Yeah. Uh, where did where did did they ask for the songs? Where did the songs? Oh, Bob Ezrin asked me to. Uh, he did a song that the Hollywood stars record never recorded, never released, called "King of the Nighttime World," and then. It was rewritten uh, by him and Paul Stanley and Mark Anthony, who no longer lives, and Kim Fowley, who's still alive, uh, wrote it. And then I was cooperative, so Bob had the uh, title of Do You Love Me about a groupie um, bothering a lead singer of a band, and I, I wrote the lyric based on that idea, and he had the music, and then the other guys came in and rewrote it, and that's how that happened. And uh, that's great because I get paid on that one. I get paid on Kiss, everybody. <laughs> like clockwork. Gene Simmons takes care of business. Right. Kim finally gets paid. I have nothing but great things to say about Gene Simmons. And the whole Kiss organization, I always get paid. Pair of Music collects my publishing, writing, share, but I'm saying I get, I get paid on that one. And I'm thank goodness because that's a giant franchise. Yeah, I'll bet it is. To this day, they just keep it's a money-making machine. Well, I have music and rock band, uh, volume one that's out. Oh, the, the game. Yeah, I'm getting, I'm getting paid. Uh, Cherry Bomb, which Joan Jett and I wrote. So, I mean, I get, thank goodness I'm getting paid on the big stuff. Yeah. It, a lot of the little stuff, you know, falls between the cracks. Dishonesty and ignorance have the same result, no money. And an important thing for your listeners who are musicians, oh, I want to be on a small label because it's romantic and poetic. Yeah, but they don't know how to collect. And then 30 years later, when you need the money from reissues, they get ripped off, and the widows of, of the guys who signed you run off with the money, a 19-year-old boyfriend, and you never get paid. The major labels pay you for life because that's their business. And the small labels maybe have good intentions, but they can't break your record and they can't pay you for anything. Tell me about Helen Reddy. I get paid by uh, on that one, and um, that was. How did you um, get together with her? They saw my name on a sign and realized I was somebody, so they uh, called me up and said, "You want to produce a record?" I said, "Sure," and I did. Just like that, uh, and no problem stepping from genre to genre. It's all just music. I'm a musical prostitute who's for hire, and you t you come into my bordello, which is the studio, and and, and tell me what you how you want to feel, and I'll I'll supply you with the pleasure you pay for. That's how I look at it. I'm I do this on reflex. I don't even listen to even when rock and roll was on the radio. I I didn't sit in the car on my way to the studio I said turn off the radio I don't want to be influenced by anything because I'm busy. I want to create something new remember the difference between music today and yesterday yesterday we wanted to change the world so we always went in to do something different and now guys go in to sound like so and so or a variation of so and so or a version of something they generally are afraid to be individuals because they're told they won't get on the radio or they won't get in retail outlets. And so they, or rock critics are going to predetermine what their next album should sound like. So they go in there making records for everybody but themselves. They even try to second guess the public. 
we used to interact with the public and say, well, the public isn't getting this kind of music right now, and they're hungry for it. Why don't we give them something they want and need, as opposed to, let's just do another version of Journey, because that's something that will make us five grand, <laughs> or we'll buy a new car because we'll put the right surf guitar on something. No, we, we, we thought we were doing something important and new, and nobody feels like that when they make records. They, they make records for the wrong reasons. Motivation's awful now. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned The Runaways. We, we can't talk about Kim Fowley and not talk about The Runaways. Uh, was it your idea to let's put together, let, let's, I'm going to make a girl band, an all-girl band? Yeah, it was time, because men were getting more and more feminine. And so I figured, well, if, if on a Darwin evolution level, if you're going to go from the New York Dolls, you better turn the page. There better be a girl standing there with a guitar in her hand. And then... There was all that glitter stuff and glam stuff going on, and, and there was no, it was getting more and more female, so it just evolved culturally into women with guitars. Uh, you, were, you sort of scoured the clubs, found some. Yeah, I found, uh, we had five editions of The Runaways before the first record, and there was even a black girl in The Runaways for a weekend. There was a keyboard player in The Runaways, and then the the, the version that we ended up with, we did the, the, the recordings with, and then, of course, they started switching members, and then it was over with. But uh, that was an idea based on the need for one. Uh, there's a documentary about the Runaways. They don't speak that highly of you. What's your reaction to that? Well, Joan Jett and I were not involved in the movie, and we were the ones that wrote most of the songs. Our songs were not licensed for the movie. They put songs by Susie Quattro and other Runaways in there, but not us. So that were, was the people in the Runaways who had issues with not being rich and famous, who didn't have careers afterwards that went anywhere for any length of time. So they all grumped and and. And, and complained and made a movie about it. But there's a documentary that was a version. There's an official Runaways movie coming out with a $12 million budget that Linson Films is putting together, the same people who did that into the Wild movie recently uh, that Sean Penn directed. And this is the next, one of their next projects is the Runaways movie, which Joan Jett and I and other Runaways all separately of course except Joan and I Joan and I have the same collective memory of what the Runaways was like and certain other members have different memories but after 10 months of negotiating we came to terms all the people involved and now there's an official Runaways movie coming out with actors and actresses playing some actors playing me I don't know who it'll be how interesting yeah uh, so that movie's coming in and it, it'll, it'll probably be fairly accurate Tell me about Jukebox California. That's a movie that I made where I played the Scarecrow of Oz on a Will Rogers level, and it won a bunch of awards in Spain and Scotland and Ireland. And then my middleman uh, got an oral agreement from a major distributor, and the guy got fired before he got it in writing, and that was the end of it. Uh, but I have a movie right now on YouTube that has 150,000 hits. Uh, on the trailer, and we're getting a lot of offers on it. It's called Doll Boy, the movie where I play an action hero. And I also play my own wife in the movie on a Milton Berle, <laughs> Robin Williams level. I can't wait to see it. Uh, how, does, how do you want to be remembered? I want to be remembered 
as a person who made records that people liked. And uh, my persona and my personality got in the way of my talent. I'm actually a gifted, talented person. You know, in terms of being small print on the back of an album or on a single sleeve, but when you see me, it's like a Frankenstein version of Gorgeous George. I'm like a nuclear undertaker when I walk in a room. I'm almost 6'5", and I wear bright-colored clothes, and I have an ego, and I'm a motor mouth. David Lee Roth, only smarter and more obnoxious. And then that's something that people don't relate to personally, except the music was pretty good. Are you happy? I'm happy. I'm a cancer survivor. I I live with positional vertigo. I'm a polio survivor. I'm lucky to have a heartbeat. Therefore, I'm grateful. Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna play pick pick a, a Kim Fowley solo solo song. Any any one, and I'll, I will play it to end this interview. I'll play the trip, and so everybody can get uh, uh, high, <laughs> <laughs> and drunk, and throw their poodle up in the air and their child up in the air and say, "Isn't life grand?" Summertime's here, kitties. And it's time to take a trip, to take a trip. This world's so bad, you feel so sad. You gotta take a trip into a world so glad. A world of frogs and green fountains and flying dogs and silver cats and emerald rats and purple clouds and faceless crowds and walls of glass that never pass.
like a savage, a wild-wild tiger. I'm the devil. I'm vulgar. I'm a pig. Oink, oink. <laughs> I'm animal man. Yeah. Wild. all the girls in my loving room floor. Oh, Animal Man, you're so rough and so big. Oh, 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 oh. Mr. Dirty will be back. <laughs> oh, God. Jungle weeds. <laughs> 